Amen. You can be seated. Well, w- welcome to Trinity Church, whether you're here in person or joining us online. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we have the privilege, and uh, hopefully you see it as that today, to open up God's word and to let God speak uh, to us. Uh, this has been a unique season uh, for our world, our city, and our church. And uh, I'm sure uh, you've had a lot of information coming in. You know, some of it less reliable, some of it more so. And uh, if anyone here has been on like work type calls and stuff like that, I'm sure somebody has got to be sick of Zoom calls, go to meetings, um, you know, no offense to the technology, and it's honestly quite well developed, but uh, God made us to long for that in-person interactions. And uh, one thing I realized on Zoom calls, you know, the kind where they can't actually see you and not the kind where you need to like put a tie on, make sure, uh, not that kind, but the kind where they can't see you and you're just listening to like a training or, or something of that nature, that I would have a tendency to tune out when it was information I've already heard 10,000 times, just reviewing something, something I already um, felt that I know doesn't have much relevance uh, to my life, my work etc. And that's not necessarily a bad way to treat, um, you know, information coming in for maybe your work, maybe uh, different areas uh, of life. We all have limited uh, time in that, but uh, that's a wholly inadequate way for us to treat uh, God's word. Uh, see, See, there's no throwaway time in God's word like that maybe five minutes of the Zoom training meeting where they're just introducing everything and going through the corporate hierarchy or uh, things like that. Well, well, well that, that, that's, that's not how God's Word works. And uh, God's Word isn't meant to be a fully ingested upon initial read in that we can read over it once you can and gain truth, but you can read over it for the thousandth time and through the work of the Spirit see things that, oh, I never saw that or I never saw how that applies uh, to my life in in that way. So as we come to the Gospel of Matthew today, I would encourage you, whether this is the first time uh, you're you're hearing these words or the hundredth time, to uh, tune in, to hear from God, there's no picking and choosing, you know, what I like, what I find relevant, as you might in a, a go-to-meeting training or something like that. But we come to submit to what, what God has said. And if there's something I don't like, is the problem with God's word? No, no, no. The problem's with, with me. It's me who God it needs to change I don't need to be trying to uh, adjust God's word. We don't alter the Bible. And we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. 
And we've seen that uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of this messianic expectation. He is all that the Old Testament was pointing forward to. And, and we're starting to get the idea that the, the kingdom has uh, arrived and Jesus is undoing the curse. He heals a leper, uh, the servant of a centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, you might remember that, and, and many who were oppressed with demon possession. Uh, this is Jesus, the messianic healer envisioned by the prophet Isaiah. But, but we would have thought that the, the devout students of the Old Testament, the scribes, the Pharisees, would be his leading followers, his champions. But instead they hate him and they're out to entrap him. And the tension we've seen is only building as this gospel progresses. And guess who's following him? It's a bunch of nobody Jews and a surprising number of Gentiles, outcasts. And the disciples are on this journey. We've seen they're starting to get it a little bit more, but they've still got a long ways to go in that. We pick up our story today in Matthew chapter 20, starting with verse 17. As Jesus foretells his crucifixion for a third time here and through correcting his disciples explains what a true greatness is, which he himself exemplifies. And this is building off what we've been seeing the last couple weeks. If you look back at the end of chapter 19, the passage concludes with, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then Todd's passage uh, last uh, week, talking about the laborers in the vineyard and the overwhelming uh, generosity of the master ends with, or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last. With, with that in mind, let's read uh, starting with verse 17 of chapter 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, well, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink. They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit on my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles 
lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Pray with me. Father God, we recognize that we are complex people with many thoughts, many desires. I pray that through hearing your word today, that your, your spirit would work in us, that we would desire Jesus above all else. That he would be our treasure. Give us a passion for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, whether it looks the way we've envisioned it or not. And that may we be changed to look more like him through our time here today. We pray this in Jesus' good and glorious name. Amen. So, so this story resonates very well with most of us. Why? Well, we'll look at the different elements that, yes, are 2,000 years old, but they sure seem like they happened just yesterday. Competition to see who's the greatest and who gets the special positions. A family member and in particular, a mother asking for her sons. And, and then all the others get upset because in, in some way they feel like they're in the competition too and not wanting to be one-upped. That's not all that far away from where you and I live. Same feelings, similar things going on, whether we look in politics, business, education, family, home, and even the church. My favorite though, kids. Why? Well, it's particularly easy and funny for us as adults to see the ridiculous nature. What will kids compete to be better at than others? I've learned just about anything. I mean, who sits where at dinner? Who gets the mail? Whose tongue is a, a better color? from the popsicle, um, who can eat, act like the most believable cat, which if you know our family, you know probably who wins that competition. And, and the disciples are, are, are no different in that they, they are having this same struggle concerning ambition and greatness. And as Jesus confronts it, he, he both provides us training in gospel leadership, and a call to embrace his salvation. So let's start. We're going to work our way through the passage, and then we'll see a couple truths that Jesus is driving home to us today. This passage starts with Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection. And that may sound like a little deja vu, like, I'm sure I've heard that before. You probably feel like, I'm sure I've heard that from, from, from this guy before. And actually, I don't know how I worked this, 
but my last two sermons have also included the uh, prediction of Jesus' death and and resurrection. And um, as you can see in this gospel, that there's a point to this repetition, that it's starting to sink in a little bit more, the emphasis that everything is driving toward the death and resurrection uh, of Jesus. It's getting a little bit clearer There's a few different details, but it it is all driving toward that. And it says here that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, verse 17. So you always go up to Jerusalem as it was a a city on a hill. And and as we see see here that uh, the disciples are making this journey with him. There's a sense of a divine destiny present here in, in Jesus' words as this is where all the action's going to take place as everything is moving toward Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Uh, Jesus was clear back in uh, chapter 16 that the chief priests and scribes were involved in his death. And and here, a little bit clearer, seems that they condemn him in in some sort of trial. And, And as if Jesus condemned by the religious leaders, religious Jews, should not have been ironic enough, we learn that here that the, the Gentiles are, are playing a role in this and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and, and crucified. The Gentiles and Jews, if you know, they're uh, not, not playing too well together. Uh, they're typically at one another's throats, but here we see in the death of Jesus that uh, they're teaming up. This isn't what the Disciples want to hear this mocked, flogged, crucified. But, but they definitely need to know this. And, and it, it says, and he will be raised on the third day. As in Jesus' two other previous predictions of his death, Jesus concludes with his resurrection. He isn't defeated. Jesus wins. And, and, and now the action here uh, switches a little bit to the mother of the sons of Zebedee coming in to Jesus with her two sons, James and John. You see her request here. She requests, Say to these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. So just by way of a cultural context, it wasn't uncommon in that day for a mother to request uh, on behalf uh, of her grown sons. In that society, it was kind of a way for her to still have a continuing influence uh, in their lives. We see that you know, Matthew here places the request on the lips of uh, the mother, but James and John are, are certainly in on it. Uh, she comes with her sons. And just the suggestion that there are places up for grabs 
at Jesus' right hand, at Jesus' left in his kingdom, it appears that uh, James and John have been talking it over, telling it to their mom. And remember back in uh, chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And that, that forms the background to this request here in chapter 20. But there, there's an additional dynamic that's going on. So James and John were part of this inner circle of Jesus' disciples as they were two of the three taken up to the Mount of Transfiguration. The other one, as you, you may well know, is Peter. And, and after Jesus uh, proclaimed that uh, his church would be built on Peter the Rock, things haven't exactly been smooth sailing for Peter. He's been involved in a lot of the action. He's been speaking out. But uh, not maybe saying the right things, shall we say. Remember how he, he rebuked Jesus for, for talking about his death and resurrection. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. And, you know, then at his uh, transfiguration, Peter suggests you know, building three tents. So, you know, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Uh, Peter's suggestion, and uh, Jesus obviously wasn't putting up with that. And the other two figures disappear. There's only Jesus there. Not long later, Peter thinks he's being generous by uh, forgiving a brother seven times. And Jesus explains that for his followers, the standard is 77 times, meaning unlimited forgiveness. Stop counting. And lastly, uh, Peter expresses some discontentment in uh, chapter 19, verse 27, when he says, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus concludes his response with, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And we've seen that driving through the end of uh, chapter 19, through chapter 20 here. Can, can you see how there appears like, ooh, there, there, there might be an opening for number one and number two at Jesus' right hand, at Jesus' left hand on the team. This might be the perfect time to, to swoop in and try to take advantage of the opportunity to secure such positions. And, and one thing I love here is that how, how Matthew words this, one at your right hand and one at your left. You see, we'll come up on it. Got, got a little ways to go. But, but that's the exact same language that Matthew employs uh, later to describe the two robbers. One at Jesus' right hand, one at Jesus' left as Jesus hangs on the cross. And, and I believe Matthew purposefully does this to help us see the, the, the connection of this foolhardy ambition and then who ends up this gospel, one on his right hand, one on his left. 
And, and that leads to Jesus' uh, answer uh, here in uh, chapter 20. Verse, um, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that, that I am to drink? So, so what, what, what cup is he talking about? This, this isn't particularly referencing a death, although in Jesus' case, he certainly will experience the excruciating death on the cross. The language is uh, focused and pointing to suffering with the implication from the Old Testament of God's uh, judgment. Uh, they, they want glory, but the question is the suffering that comes with it. And we've seen up to this point in Matthew's gospel, sustained and increasing suffering for identifying with Jesus. And we see here that James and John respond that they, they are able to drink the cup. That they understood to agree that there was this suffering that, that comes with following Jesus. However, we'll see in the Garden of Gethsemane incident a little bit later that they, along with all the other disciples, do not live up to it. Later in their lives, they experience extreme suffering as Christians, as Herod kills James, Acts 9. John, amongst many other persecutions, was imprisoned, exiled to Patmos. And Jesus says, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus doesn't answer the question of the mother, and certainly also of James and John. Who's at his right hand, who's at his left, is up to the Father. It's not something to be earned, but something that is prepared by the Father. And just to stop right here, as a side note, I love the submission, beautiful submission present in this passage, that Jesus is fully God. He is the eternal Son of the, the Father, as we've just recited in the Nicene Creed. But, but he submits to the Father. That doesn't make him any less God, doesn't detract at all from his authority. He has come on a mission to do the Father's will. And, and even answering the, the question here would detract from the point that Jesus is going to drive home. And, and he rightfully proclaims it's, that's up to the Father. And see as, as the action builds here. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. We see here that the others aren't too pleased with this request. That they feel like they're in this competition too for, for the place of honor. They, they can't believe that they would have the gall to ask for that. That she uh, with her, her two sons. And, and look at how Jesus responds. Verse 25. You know that the rulers 
of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus contrasts the actions of the rulers of the Gentiles with that of his followers. We've heard it before, and it may not have that sting to it, but, but think about how radical, weird, seemingly backwards it is to, to say that if you want to be great, you must be a servant. And becoming a slave is the path to becoming first. The disciples knew servants, slaves in their world. This seems ridiculous to them. It appears much more probable that becoming a servant or slave is a route to be not remembered. A route to doing menial, insignificant things. But Jesus proclaims it's a route to becoming first, a route to greatness. And Jesus is our example in this, he proclaims, in this type of servanthood which leads to glory. So, so what, what do we learn from the, this passage? Well, let's first talk about leadership and, and greatness, and then, then we'll focus in on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is both our example and our ransom. And, and it's important that we look at the person and work of Jesus in such a multifaceted way, view. Why do I say that? Well, there, there's plenty of people out there who are cool with Jesus being an inspiring example, a good person, teacher, but, but he's not their savior because they don't have anything they need to be saved from. And you can pick and choose what you find inspiring, helpful about his life, and you can discard what, what you consider, you know, outdated, unnecessary. In, you know, there, there are some traits worth emulating, and others kind of like how we view some of our American founding fathers and accomplishments. Some, some things worth celebrating, but other things, they got it dead wrong on other issues. Many of our, many people in our world want to treat Jesus in a similar way. They're passionate about him as an example, but why would we need him as a, as a ransom? Others are, are very passionate about Jesus as our ransom, his death saving us from our sins, but, but they miss other aspects of the cross, of this jewel. And, and they need to live in a, in a way uh, that takes Jesus as their example. They, they need to be changed by him, to see him, and to flourish in this world the, the, the way 
he did. That this passage beautifully teaches both. And we want to be passionate about Jesus as both our example and our ransom. To, to start, Jesus is our example in greatness through service. So, so what is wrong with worldly leadership? Jesus stops short here of declaring it wholly immoral. But it certainly won't work for this new community that Jesus is forming called the church. Worldly leadership values titles, positions. That's exactly what James and John and their mother came to Jesus seeking. But, but Jesus cultivates organic leadership that leads by serving others. It, even one of the two offices in this church, this community that Jesus is forming, is deacon, which literally means servant. And we may have heard deacon so much, it's like kind of like a title, you know, kind of has some sort of um, almost high standing to us. But back in Jesus' day, I mean, that, that's not something you would go around bragging like, hey man, I was elected servant not 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 so so much worldly leadership takes advantage of said titles and positions jesus calls his followers to use their positions titles to bless others to serve others this is so what what this is not this is not scrubbing a toilet while everyone is watching that, that that's worldly leadership, putting on a show of humility. Remember, we, we've seen the Pharisees, scribes come up time after time again in this gospel, and, and they were really good at putting on a nice show of religiosity for others, but having corrupt inner beings, corrupt hearts. But, but this is what it is service has done with no regard to whether others see it hear about it, know about it. And, and this is not Jesus recruiting pushovers, weak-willed, people who can't say no, but he's recruiting those who lead by serving, those who have integrity serving, those under them, not because people are watching, actually regardless of who is watching and who knows they are doing that. And, and we need to follow Jesus' example in this. How does Jesus serve his followers in this gospel? Well, we'll hear just a few examples we, we've seen so far. He heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. He casts out demons. He calms the storm. He brings people back to life. And it's typically not at all that convenient uh, of times for him. He, he feeds the 5,000 and, and then the 4,000. Did he have to do that? No. But, but Matthew is very clear that he had compassion on them. He, he comes to the disciples walking on the water in their time of distress. And, and the most popularly 
recognized example in the life of Jesus comes from outside the Gospel of, uh, of Matthew in uh, John's uh, record, in Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. No, this wasn't a publicity stint, wasn't done for, for show, but this was the, you know, a very less than desirable job. And a teacher, a rabbi like Jesus, would certainly be above doing something like this. But what does he do? He serves his disciples. Does this lead to Jesus being a pushover, doing everything his disciples ask? Yeah, far from that. We'll see. But, but it does lead to Jesus dying for his followers the death they didn't fully know that they, they desperately needed. But he knew that they certainly did. Matthew focuses on the chief example of Jesus' selfless service in his death. No, his followers, his disciples, can't and aren't called to give their lives as ransoms for others like Jesus did. But, but the call is to have that same attitude of service that led Jesus to the cross. D- different form of service, but same attitude, same motivation. So, so how does this play out in your life? How does this play out in my life? For, first of all, we, we need to think about it in relation to the church, the covenant community, family of believers. How can I be serving those in our church? Not to be noticed, not to gain recognition, but to love Jesus, to love Jesus' people. That's why as elders, we've tried to create a community where it's not explicit or sneakily implicit that some of us are above doing certain things in ministry, that we're all in it together as a team. And this extends beyond the church. This extends to the type of leadership that's needed in my family, in your family. And, you know, just as Jesus served people who weren't following him, this this type of leadership is what you need in your workplace. It it may be embraced by others, but but uh, others might not like it. They may find it's weak. It's not authoritarian enough. Uh, practically, f- for me, uh, th- this means I don't just sit in an office all day making uh, decisions at the hotel, typing emails. But I, I need to prioritize assisting others. You know, we're, we're all on a time crunch. There never seems like there's a convenient time to do things that are quote-unquote non essential, except if I view them as the, the most important thing. And, and that, that leads to messiness. That if you want to serve like Jesus serves, that will lead to difficulty, will lead to messiness. Sometimes the, you know, the people you're serving, the people I'm serving, you get in, in the trenches with them, they may ask for more help then you were really hoping to give. 
And, and, and that's okay, because our chief example of selfless service is Jesus, and in particular, his death on the cross for us. We follow his lead in leading by serving. And at the same time, seeing Jesus as our, our example, we can't miss the truth that Jesus is our ransom, rejected, executed, and victorious. One more time, verses 17 through 19, and then verse 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This gospel is consistently and powerfully moving toward its climax, the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's no way to properly understand the first 25 chapters without the final three. And there's a clear echo of the servant in Isaiah 53 going on here. Let me read this passage for us. Hear these words. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Him. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its years is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, for he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, 
make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Concerning the third prediction of his death, uh, R.T. France insightfully writes, This is to be no glorious martyrdom, but an ugly, sordid butchery. Jesus' followers were, were disturbed by this idea that the Messiah dies. And, and Jesus is adding abundant clarity that this is not like just some of the Jewish heroes of the past centuries who were martyred for what they believe. This is going to be an execution. The, the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the Gentiles are going in together on this. And it's clear that this is the will of the Father. Jesus is going to be crucified and the Father is going to be in on it. So, so what does it mean that Jesus is a ransom for many? Well, well the term ransom well, it was commonly used to refer to the price paid to secure the release of a captive. And the point of this passage is that Jesus' death is the payment needed to secure the release of the many. Did Jesus' death accomplish things that apply to every single person on the planet? Sure, absolutely. Namely, the offer of salvation. If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. The more important question, though, is for whom did Jesus secure release? For whom did Jesus die in such a way securing their salvation. And that obviously isn't every single person on this planet, but is for the many. God chooses people of every tribe, tongue, nation, ethnicity. Jesus' death doesn't just make something possible, but it secures their release. That, that is the point of the language here in this passage. If you press it farther, so who is the, this ransom paid to? To whom is it paid? Again, that isn't the, the question being asked in this passage, but the answer would surely have to be God. The, the, the price is steep. God himself crucified on the cross which primarily magnifies our treason against this God and the lengths to which he would go to buy us back. Jesus is both our example in service and our ransom paying the price for our release. The call today is to trust him as your ransom. And that starts with realizing 
your situation, that you're in slavery to sin. That the problem isn't other people out there. The problem isn't my circumstances, isn't your circumstances. It's your heart. You and I have committed treason against God. Jesus died the death you and I deserve to die. And he rose in victory, showing that he had defeated Satan, sin, and death. Our debt was paid in full. The call is first and foremost not to do anything as if we could earn God's favor, but to trust in what Jesus has done to trust him as our ransom. And if, if you are here today and you have not done this or you're listening to this online, my, my prayer is that the Spirit would work in you to not just see Jesus as, as, a, as a good guy, an example, but to see him as the, the ransom for, for you. He died the death you deserved to die. He paid the price you owed, but you certainly could not pay. And, and for those of us who are Christians, we, we see that we need to be reminded of this and, and that Jesus doesn't just leave us where he finds us, but, it, but he changes us. He changes us to look more like him and to to lead by serving that is true greatness in Jesus's kingdom that is the will of god pray with me